How would you like to improve your relationship? How would you like to respond differently in a way that facilitates mutuality and encourages connection? We look forward to addressing these issues together and welcome you to Ask Arlo, a program that seeks to help you identify negative patterns and respond in new ways that can promote a more positive relationship. Now, here is the host of Ask Arlo, Arlene Majorano. Oh, hi. Um, my name is Arlene Majorano, and I'm introducing my guest, Roberta Samet. Uh, Roberta I, and I have known each other amazingly for 50 years since we worked in a uh, family, uh, adolescent family program in Queens way, way back in the day. And um, we have remained friends ever since, So, uh, and colleagues, of course, ever since. So, um, And today we're going to talk about one of the things that's emerged for us in our practices over the many years as a um, just a, a, a difficult and sometimes heartbreaking um, issue that arises with couples who are um, in in the process of a divorce or after a divorce, and we're primarily interested in how we and they manage the safety and the protection of their children during and after a divorce. Uh, Robert, do you want to add anything to that? Good morning, Arlene. Um, yes, I, I think that one of the things which has been, and maybe we'll, we're just launching into this, Arlene, one of the things which is most on my mind when I'm speaking, and I, I don't do couples work, I do individual work. One of the things which is the forefront of my mind when people are divorcing is um, how the couple can put the welfare of the children first. Right. Um, despite despite um, what might be very contentious, acrimonious separation and divorce. So um, that's what we decided that we would right. want to do today. And because the, the consequence to children when that is not done is, is just terrible. And, uh, and I do a lot of work with couples and individuals also. And one of the things that I often say is that when I was younger and my parents would fight and be apparently unhappy, I used to wish they would get a divorce. And since I have seen the fallout of people who handle divorce uh, with dire consequences to children, I just sit there and I say, thank goodness, <laughs> thank goodness that they didn't do what I wish. Thank goodness that they stayed together because I, however acrimonious it might have been, I got to have a family that was somewhat intact and a family in which my parents didn't pit themselves against each other and use me as a, a way to continue their fight. They did it on their own. That's fine. They didn't have to use me as a as a weapon. So, uh, so do you want to talk first about people who've done it responsibly and well, like as a yeah. model? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that you know there there are the best case scenarios of which I've actually seen a few, which is amazing, and then the worst case scenarios. Right. Um, the worst case scenarios are when children are weaponized um, in the in the divorce and in the the problems between the couple. Um, but the best case scenario is ones in which the parents um, 
And it's usually in healthier, I mean, even when there's a divorce, it's, it's in families and couples where both couples, I think, are the healthiest, um, even if there have been problems there. And that's, and the, the, the example I was thinking of was a woman who came to see me. She and her husband, for a variety of reasons, were separating, and she was hellbent, absolutely hellbent on making sure that the needs of the children and the well-being of the children were first and that they actually decided together that no matter how angry they were, no matter how uh, difficult it would get, that they would make sure that the children's welfare was first. And what they ended up doing was something called nesting. Uh, And obviously in terms of a nesting situation, there has to be enough, there has to be enough affluence actually in New York City, which is where uh, where they lived to be able to do this, but where the children, in this case, there were three kids, um, were able to stay in the apartment that they had been raised in. And they, the family rented a studio apartment and the, the parents rotated through it to the parents. Uh, one of the parents would be there for three or four days a week while the other parent lived in the studio. And then um, the other parent would come in. And that really, really worked well, and they were able to hold that frame of that throughout the uh, course of what was a not too lengthy divorce and even included both people in the couple um, seeing other starting to date and to see other people. But each and every time that it was really uh, difficult, they would come back together and say, how are we going to do this, including um, and this is. I think could be a stretch for a lot of people, including meeting the former partner's new love interest, because at the point in time when the um, when the children might be involved in meeting that person. So that happened first. And that was, I think, the best, the best scenario that I've ever seen. Right. You know, and I've actually worked with somebody who did that also, who had a they had a, they, again, you're saying it's a, uh, it's easier to do when you have privilege, but this person, these people owned a, a house, a brownstone. So they just like flipped floors and the kids stayed in their primary floor and they, there was a way to flip the floors and, and cohabit really with, um, uh, the children's interest in mind. Um, so maybe that's the best case scenario, but I've all, also seen people who, who can't do that, who live in separate apartments because they've moved on. And then they just um, find a way to negotiate the weekend or weekday, uh, like, you know, visitation and the kids move around from one place to another place. But the primary issue is that the the parents don't use them. The parents don't fight. The parents keep their, um, their happiness, their safety in the foreground and 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 their um, need, their absolute need to have both parents who they love and have a connection and an attachment with, um, the, the children need to feel like they get to keep their parents. Parents can do whatever they want, but the children get to keep their parents. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's interesting that when that doesn't happen, I think one of the things, you know, we've talked or I've talked and I always talk about, you know, how they're in uh, when uh, when you're having these couples issues that we can all have. It's so important not to say that it's the other person's fault, like to take your responsibility and not target and blame and polarize. So 
in that that often is what may lead to a divorce that polarization that targeting that it's not the only thing um but when it does it's possible to keep that going even after the divorce right the it's the other person's fault they did this to me they cheated on me they whatever they did they did something to me and um they get to be demonized in perpetuity and then the children get to be used in that demonization of the other so and it could go both ways but frankly in my experience and roberta you speak to this the mother see you know we're attached to the mother from infancy she's our first attachment figure and usually the mother is the one who has the power in the, if if there's going to be uh, a polarization and a need to demonize the other partner the ex partner i think the mother usually wins i i can't think of a a a time when the father was able to ostracize the mother i i have so many examples in my practice of the mother being able to do that what you- just saying um two things come to mind one is that i can also think of an instance where it's the father who was the most stable persistent um parent parent um where within the couple the the mother was quite alcoholic mm-hmm. and the father provided the stability and they really tried to they really tried to work it out where they could live under the same under the same roof uh, mm-hmm. as an estranged or a separated couple but trying to care for the children until it fell apart because the mother's alcoholism was so powerful but within there um i think some of the issues which came up was how could the father win back the affection of the children after there had been a really um big rupture between mm-hmm. the parents and the children kind of initially sided with with the mother and so mm-hmm. it took a while for the father to win back the affection of the children as he became the primary caretaker um but, but the ini- the initial siding is, is with the, the children the children yes right. and i um, don't really know if the children would necessarily um instinctively do that side with the mother that mother must have um I'm guessing uh encourage that they're needing to side with her or her needing them to side with her so then once the mother does that um the the children almost have to yeah side with their early attachment figure yeah you know, the thing which I'm also thinking of is um another another couple where the the mother was really pretty functional but mentally ill and so all this doesn't have to be the reason why um the father is demonized but was so horribly demonized when the father said i got to get out of here to save my life i really have to get out of here and for a really long time um in this case the daughter who i think was um very pulled in to um the mother's unhappiness and beef about the father uh really didn't talk to her father and mm-hmm. what my persistent voice was to him is that at some point she will get old enough to leave the house but right now for her well-being she's living with her mother and you have to continue to reach out to her continue to send her texts continue you know birthday gifts messages calls whatever will be allowed because at some point she will be old enough to leave the home and in fact that happened right right i've seen that happen too yeah extremely painful for the father um and and it took a it took a while for them to kind of reform a more adult relationship 
right. it's working out well. Um, yeah. Right. But your advice to him, which I think is really important, is all that that partner can do, that father, mm-hmm. is, 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 is say not to continue the demonization. He can say, I love you. I'm always here for you. Whenever you're ready to be with me, I'm here for you. I will always love you. Um, and not your mother is a horrible person right. who's keeping you away from me. So you you want to create the ground for a safe reconnection. And um, it's so it's so easy to do the other thing, to then just engage in a mutual demonization, which doesn't serve anybody. And, and you can't win it. If you could win it, maybe, but you can't win it. It, it, no, you can't. You can't win it. And I, what I've also seen, which is also horrific, is when the centralized issue becomes one of money. Mm, yes, where that, where that, especially, especially. I mean, in any case, with you know, childcare, um, not with childcare, with um, uh, child support, where that gets played out around money, even if there seems to be fairly okay relationships where there's visitation and all, but that's where, where people feel starved. The mother right. feels starved. The kids feel starved. They have one experience on um, the weekend. If the father has left, it is more affluent. One experience with the father and another with the mother um, or we're in very, very, very long, long contentious um Divorces where there's a lot of money, where that money is um, used to weaponize the children and and the divorce. Right. Um, right. It's, you know, and and one of the things I mean, I, I know I have this very tragic memory that I'll never forget of um, I, I, a, a colleague of mine actually passed away and we went to his funeral and I maybe I gave a little speech because I, pr- I probably did because he was a colleague. And this girl comes rushing up to me, and she was a, like maybe nineteen twenty, um, and throws her arms around me and says, "Please, I beg you to forgive me." And I'm like, oh, wh- "Why? <laughs> Who am I to forgive anybody?" And it turns out she was one of these kids. She was the the daughter of the man who had passed away. And she just told me she was going to be guilty for the rest of her life. And could I forgive her? So of course I forgave her for whatever that, uh, whatever that did. But, um, it was just so heartbreaking and it was too late. It was too late for her to make amends. And she was going to be left with that, uh, heartbreak for the rest of her life. And, and she was one of the, she was a kid in one of those divorces that was so contentious. Yeah, you know one of the things that I I really and I I have to I have to be very uh, transparent with this that I often do not like to begin to see a new client where they're in the where they where they're about to start a divorce. Mm-hmm. In large part, especially if it's if I have a sense it's a very contentious divorce because. I really have a hard time bearing the kind of weaponizing that happens with children. And I leave it to people who, who have maybe a higher tolerance of that, that um, for that than, than I have. Um, but one of the things which I also think is really, really difficult is that situation where the children um, have, have become the weapon and enact it, won't speak to the other parent, and um, and that work and how to help those children through that 
how how do how do they connect? Right, how right. do they both survive with a parent that has the most power, as you say, and yet also not give up the emotional tie for the father and not or not reenact it in their next relationship? Right. And, and then, I'm yeah. really, really confused because um, I've also worked with obviously with children of divorce and where I don't I. I think divorce can sometimes, depending upon the toxicity between couples, if it's handled well, can be painful, but perhaps better than living in a war zone. Um, But I I think that work about seeing the parents as people who came from other parents, who came from an environment who, you know, so they can kind of detoxify. Right. To see the generational. Intergenerational transmission of that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I just, something you said before, uh, that you, you, I don't know if you said your heart breaks or you just, you're so uh, deeply moved by working with kids and as am I. And just for, just to be clear, you're, you were not a child of divorce, right? No, no, I I came from a family where my parents were very happily married until my, for 70 years until my father's death. So, yeah. Yeah. And I was not a child of divorce. So I, I just want to emphasize that, that we're not, we're not coming from a place of even a, identifying with this, these children, we're just seeing, we're just coming from the place of having seen the heartbreak and the, um, the damage and uh, over time with so many kids. And um, it's just, it's not transferential. It's not, it's just in, in terms of our own family histories, it's just, uh, it comes from a place of, yeah, of just seeing the damage that it can be done and, caring about the people who we've witnessed. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting. And I think it also calls, and this is, again, so dependent upon the the struggles of the individual who comes into our office. Let's say, for me, it's an individual. Um, but having to emphasize that there are certain times, even when working through a betrayal or, or um, being blo- really blown out of the water by a surprise, <laughs> Um, about why why is my partner leaving or the difficult decision that they may be making in leaving a relationship that um, how difficult it is sometimes to remind that person that they got to put some things aside for the welfare of the child. Right, they right. Have to really be an adult in this. They have to, rather than um, just being the wounded person, or just being the enraged person or whatever it is, but that really calling for, yes, it's a both end. Yeah. You have to do some of the work around how enraged you are or how hurt you are or whatever. And at the same time, you have to show up as, as an adult who is a fair adult for your children. Right. And, and again, take your, see what has happened that led to the the divorce as a co-created experience and not just one bad person. Mm -hmm. Um, hurting a good person. It's mm-hmm. always co-created, just like a, a fight is always co-created, but the ongoing trauma that leads to a divorce is co-created. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to circle ahead then, because we're speaking almost to like a, a silent chorus that we're, 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 we're speaking to the people who may be weaponizing the children who we're, we often are not in contact with as professionals. But, um, and if anybody's hearing that, I, I hope that you are hearing it be, and that it's making an impact. But the, the other people that we work with, whether it's the individual 
you know, a person who's um, being maybe deprived of um, parental rights. I mean, I guess we could be working with the one of the people who might be demonizing, and then we would have some power there. But um, or sometimes I'm working in a couple with the um, the per- the person who is the one of the divorced partners who's remarried somebody. And that couple that is faced with such uh, like a difficult situation to bear between them because they're married. <laughs> they're the couple now. I often say to them, you're the family now because the person who has so much power in that new family, in that new relationship is the ex-partner. Um, and, and frequently the, the new couple just spends endless amounts of time either talking about negotiating how to deal with or fighting about the ex-partner and the children who may not be able to have any relationship with the new partner. So the, the task of the new couple is to disempower the um, influence that that person like I often say, they're contaminating your relationship. They're in your relationship. Um, you didn't marry them. You didn't marry that person. That person is there. That person is affecting every day that you spend together. How do you, um, as the new couple, minimize the impact of that person who wants, who's getting what they want? They're happy if you're unhappy. Um, they're happy if you're talking about them. Um, they're happy if you're fighting about them. So they're, they're, they're getting what they want if they are um, being a divisive force in the new relationship. And that it's just so sad also to see that happening. And, and how do you, ex- it's, it's a little bit about accepting, there is a, a, a powerlessness that has to be, you do have to accept, right? As the, the new spouse, you might have to accept these children may never want to have a relationship with me. Yes. Um, rather than fight with the spouse about why aren't you making the children love me? <laughs> or why aren't you making the children uh, be polite with me or stay with me? Or it, 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 it's a, um, it, it, the, the wish may have to be seated. Um, and, you know, and similarly, the, the father or the, if it's usually the father, but potentially the mother, but the father of the children may have to seed um, the kind of relationship he wants with his children or her children. But we're going to say mostly it's the father who's the less pow- powerful um attachment figure. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you do that? How do you let go of engaging and talking about and fighting about this person who is affecting many parts of your life on a daily basis? How do you say we're the couple now and, um, and focus on that, the new family, the new couple, 
Yeah, I think it's awesome. It's so interesting you're talking about it from that perspective in the sense of, of seeding that. I'm also thinking about the complication of what happens because um, it's not the new person's uh, marriage, but it's also not the new person's children. Right, right. And what happens when the the let's say the new the new partner um, uh, has to deal with these children and doesn't want to deal with the children is interested in the you know in the person that they married but not interested in the children and what or, or is interested in the children and doesn't have access those are the two possibilities yeah, I mean it's both it's like I, you know I want these children to love me I'm going to really show up as a good step parent I'm really going to do it and the children are not interested but likewise when right. that person acts out against the children because they have in fact not have succumbed to the um the children's mother being in the middle of the relationship in some way. Right. So and how that, do you handle that? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think it, again, it comes down to accepting um, powerlessness and like that, the, that the, um, you're not going to be able to change the alliance. If the alliance is a, is a toxic one, you're not going to be able to change that alliance and to try to do it and makes you more um, targeted mm-hmm. as the, as the de- demonic one. Yes. So, so it's very, but it's very, very hard to do. I think. Yeah. I also think it's very, very hard for the new, the new parent, the new partner to really say, you know what? Uh, not only am I powerless, but I really, really need to, and maybe this is what you're talking about. I really need to give up any expectation I have about what I thought this might be. Right. Right. Uh, maybe that's what you're talking about in terms of powerlessness. Right. Um, and also that children do grow up and then there is in the same way that with, a, with the estranged parent where, hey, the children will grow up. And at some point when they're young adults, there might be a chance at some kind of relationship that could not exist, could not exist when the kids were younger. Right. And I've seen that happen to a certain extent, but it has to be when the the kid is independent and, um, yeah, not reliant, not uh, not reliant and not uh, dependent on the, the other parent's emotional like protection and support and, uh, and not, and not needing to, not guilty, not, not guilty, yeah. not needing to protect that other parent who's been in their depiction of events. So wounded or demonized, I mean, or like hurt, abandoned. Yep. So they have to be able to do that, but they have to be older. Yeah. You know, Arlene, as, as we're speaking, I'm also, um, I'm feeling I'm starting to feel a little tense <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a little bit anxious. And I want to go there. Uh, probably the reasons why I just find this so disturbing when it, when it doesn't work out so well. Um, and I'm thought we haven't really talked about this, but I'm wondering about what it's like um, for us to talk a little bit about the person sitting in the room as a therapist. You know, what, what are the things which come up inside of us as we're working mm-hmm with um with a couple um or with an individual because i think that's a really really interesting piece as well whether whether we come from an intact family a divorced family but that kind of um 
countertransference. <laughs> right, right, right. Clinically or an induced countertransference when, you know, I have a, you know, I had a client who was really, he was pretty awful. <laughs> I mean, he actually was, and I can say this about very, very few people um, I work with, but this guy was pretty, his behavior with me was pretty awful as well as I can imagine why his family um, may have felt so alienated about him. It was much more complicated, obviously, but you know, the feelings inside of me, it's what did it take for me to have a, some sense of compassion and patience with the pain in him that was leading to such a poor display of, of, you know, a behavior with me Um, because he was in fact hurting. um, But um, it took a lot for me to find that place inside of me that could sit with him. And I'm wondering what your experience is when, you know, in, in those less than perfect situations and then none of them are perfect when you're working with um, a couple or an individual. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I had an, a side thought, which I think I'm, I'll share later. But in terms of, um, I, I think that's always my my task as a therapist, but then also the, the task that I attempt to get each person to do for the other, and even then for the ex-partner, is really to see the generational pain and, and the explanation. I always say there's a good reason a good person does a bad thing. Like, mm-hmm. like we have to like look for the reason that some and have the empathy for um, what's causing the behavior that's so painful or so dysfunctional or so, um, yeah. So it's always our job to do that and to help our clients do that. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about some of this, this actually the same person who um, was quite wealthy and money had been used intergenerationally in the family mm-hmm. um, as a sign of this. And they were, they were originally, I mean, maybe two or three generations back, they immigrated to this country and the way to become okay in this country as a white person was to, to, um, to leave a lot of their culture behind and money became the new culture of how you make it in America. And yet that also became horrendously toxic in every marriage on um, in this generation, the parent and the grandparents generation, where it was used over and over and over again. And that was kind of began to kind of unlock this toxicity when that was looked at through that particular lens, that the intergenerational transmission of this. And then even wider, what did it mean to become um, white in America. These people were Jewish, but what did, it, what did it mean to become white in America? How did you gain access? And that was so much a part of the toxicity um, and became the new kind of religion in the family. Mm-hmm. That if you're affluent, if you make a lot of money, then you can buy your way out of a whole lot of things. But it, multi, I mean, there, was, there were divorces, multiple divorces in, in, in every generation. Interesting. So something got repeated in terms of the... Uh there was no model for a connection for a healthy connection. Well, but I think, I don't, I don't know if it was just like the model for a connection as in the primary connection with mother or father in that way. I think it was, it was very, very um, societally bound as well. Mm -hmm. Um, That to come here as an immigrant meant that you had to do certain things. Um, Right. But why did that necessarily lead to divorce? You said there were so many divorces in other words, I understand that the money it was the um, the vehicle for becoming, you know, recognized in our society or but empowered. 
But why did it necessarily lead to divorce? Because worth was connected to that. One's worth, worth. worth was connected to money rather than, you know, personal worth. And I am worthy of something. And that was the, that was the um, kind of disfigurement almost, you know, mm-hmm. that I, I am not worthy unless I am a highly uh, achieving, highly, you know, high money maker kind of person. And there was this real confusion about that, that went back, you know, at least I could track it back at least two generations before my client. And very mm-hmm. and, and, and similarly with this person's um, estranged wife. Mm-hmm. So then the money, the money can be used as a weapon with the children and a divorce. Exactly. Exactly. Right? And the interesting thing about a divorce and money in the United States, anyway, I think probably all over, but uh, uh, even if one of the parents is the wealthy one, um, the, the other parent gets a fairly significant settlement in a divorce. So, um, they both end up having money and they both end up being able to use money. And, and maybe even the, I, I've seen the father's ability to use his money is diminished by the divorce settlement, which could be very favorable or enough for, um, for the partner, the mother. It's interesting. I have so. not seen that by and large because mm-hmm. usually the person who is the greatest breadwinner has much more ability to hire a a high price lawyer than the person who's less the lesser breadwinner. And mm-hmm. I have usually seen that when it's um, stereotypically the woman who is the lesser breadwinner, maybe because she's been more involved in the early child raising, whatever the reason, that in those cases actually the woman does fare, even with let's say New York State laws where we are, uh, the uh, the wife does not make out as well for a variety of reasons. Yeah, um, no, I wouldn't say as well, but I'd say well enough so that if the kids, that the kids still may choose to be with that mother in an alliance. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's, it's the, uh, the attachment bond is very strong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was sitting here before thinking, like, why do we as therapists identify so much with the kids? And I guess no matter what, um, yeah, it, it, it's not even so much that our parents aren't haven't been divorced, so we don't we're not identifying in that way. But to see these like broken, hurt children um, is it's just so moving, and and um, we though, that that's who we're identifying with. Mm-hmm. I yeah. agree. Yeah, I agree. It's so heartbreaking. <laughs> Just thinking about a um, someone I haven't thought about in a while, whose parents divorced amicably. Um, both parents reconnected, and I don't know how it happened exactly because I my client was already in in her forties when I met her, but the families used to get all get together Christmas holidays. Um, the the, the two new couples and the children, and it, it really worked um, where the parents maybe had remained kind of friends and um, the kids from both, both marriages became close. And it was kind of like, okay, these were not in the, in this instance, these were not children who were broken by the divorce, oh, who were, right, right. you know, uh, because the parents for whatever reason had um, handled it well, or maybe that fact that the, that the, marriages had become um, maybe more friendships than 
you know, um, marital relationships. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so that worked out kind of well, but obviously this is exemplary, but not what often happens. Right. Yeah. Um, it's great when that does happen because if something is, isn't stopped working, um, it, there's a reason again, and the reason belongs to each person. Exactly. And to just see the reason as belonging to the other person is, is the road to yeah. nowhere, the road to disaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, should we just circle back a little on this, just the idea that what do you do when you can't, when you, when you have no power, when you have, when, when you can't really um, engage with the other person, the children in the way that you want to. Yeah. And you just really have to humbly accept that what you wish could be cannot be and, and not to complete, not to continue to engage with um, trying to change what cannot be changed. I mean, what, what I, when I'm in that situation with a client, I recommend that they, even if the children do not want to talk to the parent, don't want anything to do with them, don't want to see them. I recommend that they continue to stay in contact. Mm-hmm. Right. That in, that, be, in that loving way. In that, I, I love you. I will always love you. This is really hard. It's hard for me too. Um, at some point we will be able to talk whenever you're ready. I'm here. You know what that, that repetition of, I love you. I'm here. Um, and hopefully that stuff gets through, you know, a lot of kids have right. phones and, and cell phones and can do that, but that has to be the consistent, um, you know, reaching out so that the child knows that, that the parent is loving and caring and I love you. And someday we will be able to be together. You know, it's interesting because guilt is a funny thing. Like, like it's guilt is often seen, uh, it's seen as a, a negative thing. I feel guilty and I shouldn't feel guilty, but sometimes guilt can be, um, like a, like a positive, like, like an empathy, like, like a form where there's no like really healthy word for guilt, except maybe empathy. But what, what I'm thinking, like if a, if a, if a parent, um, does the opposite, like just says your mother is, is a this, or all she ever does is try to turn you against me. She's worth nothing. What if they, if they do that, it pushes the child closer to the mother's point of view and, 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 and um, reinforces and validates the mother's point of view. But if, if the other parent who's being ostracized does what you're saying and just says, I love you. I know it's hard for you. Um, I'm always going to be here for you. It, it builds like a connect, even if the, all the kids, it builds like another source of guilt or empathy and again, there's no healthy word for guilt that I can think of, but the kid feels badly for the father, if it's the father. Um, and they're kind of left with the, the, the reality of this person kept reaching out to me and I kept turning them down. And they have to live with that. And again, in adulthood, when they maybe can make a different kind of choice, they're able to come back to that other parent yeah. and apologize. Yeah. I, I also think it can be seeded um, as E-E-D-E-D. Like, I know that right now you probably 
don't want to talk to me, can't talk to me. That yeah. is okay. You may be angry at me. So that can be seeded. That's what I recommend as well. Mm-hmm. That um, that can be seeded as well. So that to reduce that sense of guilt, to reduce that sense of being pulled apart inside. Right. Um, and I also, interestingly, um, I think about restorative justice, the whole process of restorative justice. And I don't, I don't think most, most, parents and children or couples go through a really restorative justice program. But at some point in time, I do think there is that moment when um, mostly when the child wants to know more, can have real conversations about what it was like for them and where the parent can really also say, yeah, you know, what I did was, was um, really harmful um, or it was very hurtful to your mother or hurtful to your father. And I would, the phrase that I love is guilty and not to blame. <laughs> this is what I did. And this is a, the stuff you were talking about before, about the intergenerational transmission of some of this stuff. I, I was guilty for what I did, but not to blame. Um, this is where I come from. And, or, or with the couple, guilty, not to blame. Yes, you are enacting this, but this you didn't create this. You didn't create this when you were born. And some of that, I think, also helps to... Um, dissipate some of the guilt or some of the shame. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a famous, um, at least in Gestalt theory, there's a, a writer called Arnold Beiser, and he wrote this wonderful article called "The Paradoxical Theory of Change," and he speaks to this a little. They, like that, in any given moment in time, you can only make the decision that's possible for you to make based on generational learning, based on um, what you perceive of as your available possibilities based on how you're able to manage your anger and your disappointment and your hurt. You can, you can, and based on your emotional awareness in that moment, you can only do the thing that you're capable of doing. And that's what emerges. That's your choice that emerges. Mm -hmm. And we all look back. We can, we all probably have a hundred things that we can look back on and say, Oh, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have, gone there. I wish I would have, you know, done something differently, but to really appreciate that. I think that's what you're talking about for, and again, that's the empathy. That's the, um, you have that empathy for yourself if you can, and you have that empathy for others if you can. And that's the healing, um, the pathway to healing and forgive forgiveness or acceptance. Um, but that's a little bit like what you're talking about. Yeah. Right? And also the notion of evolutionary time, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that things don't remain the same over time. Mm-hmm. And I think the, uh, you know, in sometimes in family systems theory, that there's a sense of what happens at another point in time, like the, the, the kids grow up, what happens then, what can get introduced then, which was not a part of the original, um, the original dysfunction with the couple. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens with people, which is why I feel so strongly when I'm working with someone who um, is, you know, divorced or in the process of it, that the work that they do in this time is going to make them different down the line when their kid talks to them or when they're with their children. And the very, very perhaps best way, let's say with kids who are actually seeing the other parent, the best way to kind of put out some of the fires is when the parent shows up as being other than the, perhaps they were with their child's parent. Mm-hmm. That's the best endorsement for something which can be reparative 
just have a decent time that weekend that you're that you're going to have. Um, do the best that you can in that moment, and that may actually create something down the line, which is going to be able to restore some genuine affection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess if you do that, what you're doing is you're appreciating the child in that moment and not using the child. You know, you know, and we've all been with children. Children are so precious. They're so innocent. They're so um, everything is new and novel. And if we can be with them in that and, mm-hmm. and appreciate, adore, um, celebrate them. Yeah. That's what they need from us. They don't need to be, um, used in any way. Yeah. You know, it's also it hadn't dawned on me, but I also can think of just how important grandparents are. Mm-hmm. Um, in a, yeah. How important grandparents can be when there's a divorce, when those relationships can maintain, can be maintained in a very strong way, because it's another, it's another way for children to feel loved and adored in a, hopefully in an uncompromised, non-conflictual way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that grandma and grandpa love can be the thing which keeps a child going through the midst of all kinds of terrible things mm-hmm. that can happen. Um, and just how powerful those connections are and how powerful and important it is for, for both parents to keep those connections, even when there's estrangement, but to keep those parents sure. into relationships. But of course I've seen the grandparents take a side as well. You know, yeah. you're, you're talking about a grandparent who's able to not do that. Yeah. Um, to not take a side and to, to, um, appreciate the kids. Yeah. And I think it can be also part of that intergenerational work, you know, for a parent who is mature enough to say, listen, you know, mom and dad, their mother and father really need us to really be just focused on the children and no bad mouthing of my ex-wife or my ex-husband. Let's just really, let's really just love up these kids because they're really having a hard time. And, you know, sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. Right. And then, you know, I, hopefully the work of a child in, um, in adulthood is, as they become more adult is to, and again, it's that paradoxical theory of change. Each child has to ultimately, if they've been uh, an, an object of this kind of dissension, um, to really forgive themselves, to really say, I did, I did what I could do at a given point in time. Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't do otherwise, I couldn't yep. betray betray my mother. I couldn't. Um, I wasn't safe enough. I I I was too guilt induced. I could not do it. And again, again in adulthood, they may be able to do something different. But it's so important for them to um, like appreciate and have empathy for themselves and <laughs> appreciate the bind that they were put in. And um, go forward if they can with yeah. both parents, but to really not attack themselves for yeah. what they could not do otherwise. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. You know, as you're speaking, one of the things I'm thinking because I'm also thinking about grandparents is how many children, and it could be children where the parents are intact, but it's pretty hard at home or where there's divorce. Um, children who have surrogate parents, and by that I mean their best friend's parents are where they hung out. When mom and dad were screaming and yelling, they would go to Johnny's house or Jane's house. And yeah, that yeah. Year, you know, they were kind of pulled in, embraced by that family, and they hung out a lot there. And I have just heard so many stories about people where um, that's what 
that's what gave them this diff- very different sense of how things could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's so important. That other mother, that other father, that other family where they felt safe and they could go to regularly, like they were, they were, there was a seat at the table for them. And right. um, where um, that can be encouraged. Yeah, and it's so important because it creates a neural network where there's a possibility for something different. And again, you can, and I've seen that with people, whether it's a kind teacher or a grandparent, like you say, or a neighbor or anybody who um, creates a different experience and there's a different possibility. And then there's a different part of the brain that's learned a different neural network, a different pathway. And, And it can be a great resource in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way the way it should be, <laughs> the way things could be, and should yeah, be. And, a, and a different sense of possibility, right? right. A possibility to create that possibility into you know adulthood, right? So, but again, to just reinforce, this is what when when there are all when there are so many people who aren't necessarily engaged in an effort to have a healthy communication and are instead engaged in um, a a need to keep a polarity and an antagonism going, antagonism, (laughs) um, there's there's a sense of maybe just, again, to accept the powerlessness and not, not engage with that person any more than is necessary to keep that Antigon, antigon, how, why am I saying antagonism, antagonism going, um, to keep it going in a way that, um, just reinforces, deepens, um, the very thing that you would like to eliminate. Yeah. And I think for the children is also for that person, like to stop being the victim, starting to say, Hey, you know what, this is what is, and it really hurts. And I'm going to, I'm going to move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very humbling. Very humbling to, to be in that moment. To yeah. be in that position. Um, yeah, and to focus on what's possible and not what's impossible. The glass is half full instead of the glass half empty. Uh oh, we have. Uh, all right, so. We're coming to the end of our podcast. So is there anything else? I'm just wondering that we want to say before we end. Um, it's been fun. I'm glad to have these conversations with you, Arlene. After all these years, we keep on having conversations. Yeah. It's great. Um, and I, I think I would also say maybe this. And I think that um, I've always felt that when the going gets rough, you expand the team. So as therapists, for those people who might be listening with therapists, I think that it's really, really important to be able to, um, to reach out to other colleagues in those really, really tight situations when it's a very, very difficult, difficult uh, journey for a couple who's divorcing or an individual, because I think that uh, we, need, we need that support to support that person. Um, and I don't necessarily mean supervision. I'm talking about, for, you know, I'm really taught. I mean, that's really important too for, for newer clinicians, but I think it's really, really important to, to expand the team mm-hmm. uh, to support us as we are trying to help people move through that. Cause it's uh, not for the faint of heart. Not for the faint right. Of heart. Do you mean just to reach out to a colleague as a friend and say, this is what 
as I have with you, as yeah. I have, yeah. with, Same. And have with me to, you know, anonymously say, hey, this is, this is really, this is really working me. This is really mm-hmm. working me. Um, because just as those parents that those couples need to have support systems, I think we need to also um, reflect that in ourselves in terms of what do we need when it's a really, really contentious situation. Um, what do we need? What do we need as clinicians to uh, support us to support the work that we're doing? Right. Anything else that you want to bring in as we close? No, not not really. I, I just, I, um, I guess the again to the couple who's dealing with the the power the power and the powerfulness and the animosity of the. Um, the other spouse is just to attempt to not empower them even more by fighting. Make make the uh, the issue has to be between the two of you, and how do you? The, how does the new couple um, help each other build their new relationship with that terrible um, stress that's always going to be a part of it, rather than to turn against each other? Because one of the partners isn't handling the stress in the way that the other one wants them to, when in fact it's probably pretty impossible to handle it uh, the way anybody would would want to, you know. Yeah, I would totally agree, and I and I also think that part and parcel of that is when one person, as you say, kind of gives into the powerlessness powerlessness of it, something has to change in that system. Mm-hmm. If, if you if you choose not to fight, if you choose not to be in a will struggle, something changes. Could potentially, yeah. yeah. Because the, the opposite uh, makes the person who wants to fight more empowered, more emboldened, more excited, more energized, more ready to, to, to meet, you know, antagonism with antagonism. So maybe, yeah, maybe if they, they can't do that, um, and, and they get a different kind of message, maybe there could be some possibility of shift. Yep. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. And this is really, it's great talking with you, Arlene. Same after here, all, same after here. All the years. After all the years. Hey, this is good. <laughs> the funniest thing is you and I worked with couples when we were 25, and I still look and I think, how in the world did we, we do did. it? Who we did, did we think we were? But we, we did it. We were babies, yeah. <laughs> we were. We were babies. Thank you so much. All right. For- okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Ask Arlo. Arlene Majorano has another episode of the podcast coming soon. So keep checking back on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And be sure to visit askarlo.com to ask questions and to find out more about the show. Until our next show, keep finding new ways to renew the relationships in your life.